Welcome to the Barnes and Thornburg Podcast Network. You're listening to Trial Ready, a podcast dedicated to learning about the work of trial lawyers and their insights into the legal issues of today. To learn more, visit us online at btlaw.com. Welcome back to Trial Ready, Barnes and Thornburg's podcast dedicated to hearing and learning from some of the best trial attorneys in the country. Thanks to everyone who listened to last month's episode. Today, we're honored to have our first woman trial attorney on the show, Sarah Johnson. In 2019, Sarah was recognized as a product liability rising star in Law 360. So we are excited to learn more about her today. But first, let's get to our preliminary questions. Yes, thank you, Mina. Yes, hi, everyone. It's Michelle Bradford, and thanks for checking in with us again. And we are so excited to have Sarah on with us today. We get to have some real girl talk. But Sarah, first, our preliminary questions. Who are you and what do you do? Oof, that's a tough one. Um, All right, well, thanks, ladies, for having me. I'm looking forward to... uh, the girl talk. I am Sarah Johnston. I am a partner in the LA office of Barnes and Thornburg, and I am the co-chair of the drug and medical device practice group, uh, which is part of the firm's product liability and mass tort practice group. So I am a mass tort product liability attorney. Well, thank you. Where are you from, Sarah? So I'm from a town called Arlington, Tennessee, which is right outside of Memphis. Um, I feel like uh, you you probably, because you ladies are so nice, you don't hear my Southern accent that comes out when uh, I'm a little nervous or, um, I don't know, have had a glass of wine or two. Um, typically, the, the Southern accent stays put uh, when I'm uh, having a nice general friendly conversation. I hear it. I hear it underneath. I hear it. <laughs> oh, that's good. Mina's making me nervous. That's why. Um, yeah. So I'm from Arlington, Tennessee. It is about 20 minutes from the Arkansas border, about 20 minutes from the Mississippi border. That made me a tri-state Girl Scout back in the day. Tiny Southern accent. LA has done its best to get rid of most of it. Well, I was about to say you're a big city girl now living in LA. So I'm surprised you haven't lost the accent yet. What do you think your top three legal jobs have been? Top three legal jobs. Um, so I love being a partner here, uh, being a partner at B&T. I've been a partner since 2016. And, um, uh, you know, I, I don't think that that there's been a better job that I've had. Um, I would say the, the, the second best uh, was uh, working at a small trial boutique where uh, when I was an associate, this was before B&T opened the LA office um, and before I joined the firm, but it's where I sort of started to hone the, the trial shops early on. Um, and so that was a, a really cool job. And then, you know, I think that that the first job that I had doing true product liability work and realizing that it was something that I wanted to do for the rest of my career, um, which was a, a combination of, of the trial work that I did when I was first an associate out of law school um, and then, you know, on into my work at, at B&T. Very cool. And now the question we ask all our trial lawyers, what is your number? Number of trials. I'm at lucky number 13, not first chair, um, but I feel like some of the best experiences, uh, that, that early war room experience. So 
13 to verdict. Sarah, you know, that's Barnes and Thornburg's lucky number two. 13. I did. I did. That was a shout out to Bob Grand. I, it may be like 11 or 12, but I felt like I needed to, <laughs> I felt like I needed to get the B&T lucky number in. But yeah, 13, I believe as of, as of last count. Very impressive. Mina, back to you. All right. As we do with all of our guests, because this is a really interesting time, and we're also hoping to, t- to you know, inspire some younger folks. What led you to become a lawyer or want to become a lawyer and go to law school? So um, I feel like the uninspiring answer would be that uh, I was a, a poli-sci and communications double major in undergrad, and that, um, you know, I read a lot of books and graduated <laughs> and didn't really... Uh, um, find a lot of jobs that, that wanted to hire me because I knew a lot about West European politics. Um, but the, I think the more inspiring answer is that, um, you know, I, I, I graduated from undergrad and I was uh, fortunate enough to get a job working in government. I had a fellowship straight out of undergrad where I worked for uh, the Indiana governor's office and I um, got to meet um, a lot of lawyers, including BNT lawyers, um, before I went to law school, and um, the, the thing that I never appreciated about lawyers is that being a lawyer um, is it, it's it's one of those nebulous jobs that uh, if you're you know if you're not one, you don't really know what they do. Um, but you kind of assume that everybody's a jack of all trades, but meeting lawyers who really specialize and have a niche and think really well um something that you don't appreciate until you work with a lot of them and then realizing that there are so many different ways to be a lawyer um was was really cool so um you know understanding that it's not all law and order or night court or any other reference that could just age me a lot more than i'd like to be right now um i think that that you know understanding that law is a big umbrella and there is a, a place for anybody who's interested in in getting out there and doing something good for clients or for the world. And I was interested in that. So when you decided to go to law school, did you, you know, automatically think, okay, I'm going to be a trial lawyer. This is awesome. This is what I want to do. Or did you start like taking a products liability class? How did you get into it? No, I mean, the answer is absolutely not. I, um, you know, I've always been a, I've always been a talker. I've always been a, uh, you know, I think a good, relatively good communicator, but there was something so jarring and so terrifying about the first couple of days of law school when you see what it's like to, you know, actually be part of the the classroom experience that, you know, is the Socratic method and, and being asked questions on the fly about things that are basically a foreign language to you. And I, I feel like there was there was part of me that wanted to shy away from it really really quickly. Um, interestingly enough, I feel like the the thing that got me um, much more comfortable uh, about the idea of, of communicating to other lawyers was um, I did a sketch comedy group in law school and got to know a lot of my fellow classmates and got to um, you know be around a lot of smart people in a very setting and, um, you know, hanging out with them and, and talking law stuff and talking comedy stuff and having it be um, just a, a good vibe for getting to know your future colleagues um, did a lot for my confidence in that space. So um, I would say in terms of 
what sort of pushed me in that direction in law school. It, I think it was something a bit unorthodox, but um, I think what, what got me to want to do trial work um, as an actual attorney um, was the opportunity, the, the chance to get to go do it. And I think that that's really rare. And I graduated from law school in 2008. It was a weird economy. I moved to I moved from Boston. I went to law school to LA. Um, you know, people were deferring graduates. There was a lot of uncertainty about where, you know, where people are going to end up career-wise. And um, I made the decision um, at my first term before joining BNT that if somebody said, would you like to go do this? I was just going to say yes, because um, I, I saw how my classmates were affected by the, you know, the lack of opportunity. And so getting to go to court, getting to, you know, be the one writing cross outlines and positions and building a file that led to a trial um, was less a an immediate passion and much more a you want to do this job, so you say yes when somebody gives you the chance to do it. That is so awesome. That's a great story that you. I mean. I don't know if I would have had the bravery right out of law school just to jump in and say, I'm just going to take it because this is a scary time. No, I don't. I don't. <laughs> I mean, I think bravery is a really nice way to look at it in the way, way, way rearview mirror, because um, it, I mean, I, I remember the first time that I went to court, it was for a CMC in Santa Monica Superior Court. I had been I think I was sworn in like two days earlier. It was December of the year that I graduated. It was literally going to be a five-minute conference in a you know a court a courtroom that probably had thirty or forty matters on the docket that day. I had lived in LA for only six months. I was still afraid to drive on the freeway. I had a nine-mile drive from my house to the courthouse and had to do it all on surface streets. I think I woke up for an eight thirty hearing at you know four o'clock in the morning. Wanted to you know, puke my guts out and drove there the entire way rehearsing how I was going to be in court that day. And I was going to really, I was going to really crush it when they said, are you willing to go to mediation? And my answer was yes. Um, no, I, I think that, that it, it, it's really, it's less bravery and more willing to just jump in and say, yeah, if you trust me to do this, then I'm going to give you the, I'm getting the faith in me that I'm going to get it done even if that's CMC two days after you're born in. That, I think that probably says a lot about your character as well as an attorney. But um, So I have to say something now that probably our listeners might agree with me, but I don't know if you will. So Michelle and I are white collar lawyers, right? So we think white collar is the most interesting thing ever, of course. And we hear products liability and we're like, oh my God, how does she do that all the time? So. Of course, my question is, how do you make that interesting to a to a jury? Like, I would just, if I got picked for that, I'd be like, I, I actually remember saying to a jury once, I'm sure when you got picked, you didn't think this was going to be law and order antitrust. Because if you did, you would have been like, I'm sorry, I have to leave, judge. Well, okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preface this by just saying that um, if, if y'all were in any other area of practice, I feel like I could just be like, oh, come on. You think that's more interesting than product liability? I will say white collar. You get great fact patterns. You get crazy stories. You get a ton of stuff that's like just, just way out there. And like, yeah, I mean, you guys, I mean, respect. But at the same time, um, 
product news, it, it's the best. And this is, it's one of those times where like when I talk to associates and I talk to, you know, other people that are unfamiliar with what, um, you know, what we do in our practice, um, I always feel like I'm putting this very like Pollyanna shine on the, on the specific practice because it can't, I can't possibly be genuinely telling you that I'm this excited about it, but I am this excited about it. I think that product is the absolute coolest area of law, particularly when you are thinking about how, how am I going to tell a story to a jury? How am I going to, how am I going to engage with a jury? And it's not, there's nothing about it that is dry. I think there are ways to tell the story that are a little bit dry. There are certainly some things that, um, you know, the jury's going to have to know, particularly on the defense side, that are a little bit, okay, well, just bear with me. We're going to get to the good stuff soon. But what I think that is the most fascinating about products is that, I mean, similar to white collar, you're not just dealing in a strictly commercial space. This is not a strictly, you know, this is not a business dispute. You're talking about people and you're talking about something else in relation to people. And I think that, um, you know, the, 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 the way that, you know, businesses function and the way that, that uh, products are developed is fascinating. I'm fortunate enough to work for, um, so many companies that make products that truly do not just make products that work, but make products that change lives, change lives for the better. And um, getting the opportunity to tell that story from not just a personal perspective, but a, you know, a, a the, the perspective of, of a scientist that developed a drug or a medical device that's implanted and, you know, helps people walk again or, um, you know, a, a drug that, that saved somebody's life cured their cancer, did, you know, something that is not just affecting a person, but also, you know, every person you know, around that individual um, is, it's a story that I enjoy telling and I enjoy working with other lawyers that tell that story well. And so even when you get into the dry stuff, the regulatory, um, some of the R&D that seems a little bit more, oh man, is this is this witness going to talk for three days on <laughs> FDA regulations and how do we, you know, do we play cartoons in the middle? Like how do we keep, them, how do we keep things snappy? But it's, it's really, you know, as long as you have a narrative that's going to, you know, get to, um, you know, get to the end point that you promised at the beginning, um, I feel like jurors will, will stay tuned. And I don't think that's specific to products, but I certainly think that products uh, lend themselves to, um, that storytelling, and I, I think that's especially true for for pharmaceuticals and medical devices, which is really the the space I live in most of the time. You know, I have to agree with you, Sarah. I started out as a product liability lawyer a long time ago, and then you just blew us off. I sure did. Well, what happened was I went and became a prosecutor, and I got a chance to do some criminal law, and I thought, wow. First of all, these cases have a definite insight because I know my client has to go to trial within. A certain amount of time. And so it's not going to go on for years and years. But one thing I found to be very shocking between civil, huh? I'm only laughing because you said I went and became a prosecutor, like the way I say, like, yeah. And then I went and got some bread and dropped off my dry cleaning. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's how it was. It was like, you know what? I've got to try something different because um, <laughs> let me just go out and be a prosecutor. <laughs> yeah. And it was 10 years. Well, over 10 years worth of it. But um, well, one thing I noticed was 
I found civil litigation, I found the lawyers in civil practice opposing counsel to be some of the most uncivil people towards each other versus dealing in the criminal realm. Well, I'm not saying it's all kumbaya, but people just seem to really get along much more easily. It's not as difficult. How have you dealt with, you know, difficult opposing counsel without naming any names? What are some of the strategies you'd recommend for young lawyers who might be entering into the civil realm and coming up against some of the more difficult opposing lawyer, uh, counsel. So the question I heard you ask was, can you read a list of names of all the difficult opposing counsel? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Number one. <laughs> um, no. So it, it, here's the thing. I think that, and I know that this has, has been your experience too, Michelle, and yours, Mina. I used to be very intimidated by mean attorneys. And I think that as, as women coming up in, um, in, very aggressive types of litigation. It can be very easy to say, oh, okay, like, you know, that's the meanest person in the room. He must be, or she must be the smartest person in the room and therefore I must be wrong. And what I've learned over time, and I think that unfortunately it's just, it, it is something that that really only time can teach you is that the attorneys who know how to pick their battles and know how to fight the fights that are worth fighting are the best ones. They're the smartest ones. And it doesn't matter if they're defense attorneys or plaintiff's attorneys. They're the ones that are going to be, you know, not only the ones that you can get along with, but also the ones that are going to be the most successful. So the ones that you should be looking out for, you know, because you're going to face them time and time again. And um, I think fortunately in the in the world of, of MDL or multi-district litigation practice, which is a lot of what um, our practice group does, you know, we face a lot of the same people over and over again. So you develop some relationships over time and you know who's you know who's going to be worth working with and who's going to come to the table with a compromise and you know who's not. And, um, you know, unfortunately, there are always going to be some bad apples that just love a fight for no reason who are going to say, I can't give you two extra days on your discovery responses because I, I'm, I'm, even though I'm going on vacation for two weeks starting tomorrow, I just feel like making your day worse. And like those people are going to exist, but those people are, for the most part, at least in my experience, not going to be the ones who are super successful because they're just not the ones that you're going to want to work with. And, and they're not the ones that you're going to, you know, see be successful with judges and, you know, in complex hearings or the ones that are able to advocate for points over, you know, true recitations of facts versus just histrionics. So I think that that while difficult opposing attorneys are just a, a the way the world works, I, I do think that um, by and large, if you're dealing with sophisticated opposing counsel and, you know, truly good opposing counsel, there's absolutely no reason that you can't have a friendly relationship with that person. And if there's, if there's truly something that is, is, is making it seem completely impossible to develop that sort of rapport with opposing counsel, then I feel like it, you know, there, there are reasons to step back and say, okay, well, what it, what is it that I could also be doing differently? Is this always going to be this other person's fault? Or am I projecting something about, you know, how I want this litigation to proceed and, and preventing us from having a relationship, which I think particularly in, in the work that, that I do and that, that we in our practice do, you know, these are litigations that can you know, start when you start in 2010 and end in 
2025. So if you can't figure out a way to make it work, then you're just signing yourself up for 10 or 15 years of misery. And that is no way to live. Well, that's right. And that's why I like criminal law, because we divorce each other after a year, two years tops. (laughs) (laughs) We're we're done with each other. You can be as mean as you want to be because it's going to be a very short. But we're not. We're not. (laughs) Even even quicker when you have the Speedy Trial Act going. Come on. Right. When the clock's ticking, it's like, okay, let's all get to a resolution. But, um, you know, something I think a lot of young lawyers struggle with, and I certainly did, was finding their voice in the courtroom. You know, you watch people in trials. I'm an avid trial watcher. And so I would see different personalities and think, I'd love to be like that, or I'd love to be like this. How do you think, well, first of all, how would you describe your trial persona and how did you develop it? How did you get there? So I feel like it would be, uh, I love that question. I feel like it's one that, um, I feel like it's one that, that you could ask a, a trial lawyer or, or, you know, really a, any courtroom litigator every five years. And the answer would probably be different because I think it, you know, is something that evolves over time. Um, I think that the, the initial struggle as, uh, as, as, as anyone who's advocating in a courtroom, be it in a trial or, or anything else, the, the initial struggle is something that I, I always tell associates is, is the, where do I put my hands problem, which is a, a silly way to put it, but basically it's, it, I can't focus on who I am and who I am and, and the image that I'm projecting or, or the things that I'm saying because I'm so nervous about where I stand with respect to this podium or this council's table or, you know, do I say may it please the court or do I do these other things that I learned in moot court? Um, and, you know, how do, I, how do I make sure that I make it out of here without, you know, ripping my jacket or, or playing something stupid or tripping out of my shoes. And then once you get past that, I think it's much more, you know, are you able to have a conversation with a judge or a jury that actually communicates the point that you're trying to make? And so the thing that, that I think is really challenging and it's something that I still try to, to, to deal with um, anytime that I'm in a courtroom is Am I actually connecting with the person that I'm speaking to? And, and so I think it's less about do I have this persona that I'm trying on when I go into a courtroom and more about am I being, you know, the genuine article when I'm speaking to a judge or another person in a courtroom? And is that a different person than who I am outside of it? Obviously, you've got to be a little bit different. I am certainly a little more buttoned up in a, in a, in a courtroom than I am, you know, sitting here talking to you guys on, on a Monday night. But um, I, I think at the end of the day, the, the desire to go into a courtroom and have every single answer so carefully crafted and so perfectly memorized and to know exactly where your hands go and to be afraid to make any single mistake is the thing that gets you away from actually Really connecting with the person that you're talking to, and so being willing and and frankly encouraging a conversational tone, I think is probably you know the most important thing that you can do, particularly as a lo- a young lawyer walking into a courtroom. Um, and then as an aside, and speaking of the southern accent, just to bring it on home, 
Um, I did try my first case that I tried as a first year attorney was um, in the South. And because I was very nervous, every time I spoke to the jury, I had this very deep Southern accent, which is something that I grew up with. But um, I, I thought for a second, um, every time I walked out of the courtroom, that I just sounded like, like I sound right now until my colleagues and partners said, what was that voice? Y'all, I don't know. I am, <laughs> I am real nervous. And so for a second, I thought, well, is that who I am in a courtroom? Um, but I, you know, I think that, that, that time has given me a little bit more comfort in, uh, in, in being myself and not necessarily, you know, reverting back to uh, the days of my youth. But um, yeah, I think it's just, can you speak in a conversational tone? Can you actually connect? And are you trying to to present yourself as something different than you actually are when you're speaking to a judge or to, you know, to to a jury? And, and if, if that's where you find yourself, how do you course correct and, and do it differently? We're turning it back over to Mina because we're going to our final segment of the show, which is our cross-examination. Favorite. It is our favorite part of the show, Sarah. And you're going to love it too, because guess what? Because we get to cross-examine you. Here are the rules to this part of this. I love this. Yes. Here are the rules. You must play by the rules. I ask the question. You can only answer yes or no. You may not explain. Don't make me get cross with you, Sarah. Because... Yeah. So in this scenario, I'm a pro se plaintiff, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. No, it's okay. Because we love you, I'll let, I'll let Michelle object if she thinks there's a problem with the question. But she will not <laughs> because she knows better. Okay. okay? All, right. All right. Let's, Let's do, do it. it. Okay. Isn't it true that you attended Indiana University for college? Yes. Okay. And you have... A BA in political science, correct? Correct. And you attended Boston School of Law, correct? Boston University, correct. Uh, so that was incorrect then. That was a no. All right. My people wasn't there for me. And you began working at Barnes and Thorberg in 2013, correct? Correct. And for a trial that you had in South Carolina, you purchased several suits to perfect a Southern chic look. Is that correct? I really don't know where your information is coming from. And is I'm that a yes or no, ma'am? I'm yes sorry, no. Ms. Johnston. Would that be yes or I, no? I, Please I, answer the question. I'm going to get cross with you. A yes or no? I really wish there was a visual component to this podcast. Because <laughs> yes. And secondly, thank you. Next question, counselor. All right, I'm going to go to my next question. And at that same trial, isn't it true that you turned your hotel living room into a trial war room? Yes. Okay. And in the beautiful mind style, did you perhaps put large pieces of paper up everywhere all over your room in order to prepare for trial? Yes. And isn't it also true that in order to memorize facts for trial, you perhaps paced back and forth and back and forth and back and forth in the parking lot. Got to get those steps. Yes. That would be a yes, ma'am. Thank you for participating in our cross-examination. Ms. Johnson, you did such a great job. Yay. Well, Sarah, we'd like to turn it back to you for a quick wrap-up. Basically, is there any advice, any kind of lasting words you'd like our audience to take from the lessons you've learned through your career. I guess, what would you say to the young lawyers coming up after you who might be interested in product liability work? So 
first off, if you're interested in product liability work, give me a call. It's the best. I don't know what you've heard about white collar. It's I've heard that's fine, but products, number one. Um, secondly, I would say if you're young and you're interested in, in litigating, even if you don't have really designs on being a trial attorney or an MDL attorney or, you know, whatever it means in this space that, that I sort of operate in, um, the hardest thing to overcome is your own self-doubt, your own criticisms of your ability to do this thing. And the people who I have been fortunate enough to witness be great at this job, many of whom we're lucky enough to work with every day, uh, several of whom I believe have already been on this very prestigious podcast. Um, but the, the, the takeaway that I've had from watching truly great uh, trial attorneys, litigators, advocates is that they are not dissuaded by the dissuaded by the the other people in the room. They're true to themselves when they walk in. They they accomplish what they need to accomplish by being themselves, and they don't allow the 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 natural self doubt that we all have to infect the ability to communicate with them that they're trying to communicate. And I think that that's something that takes some time to get to. But every person who's putting on a lot of, you know, who's, who's puffing their chest out and putting on a big show and a lot of bluster and all that, they may have just as many butterflies in their stomach as, as you do when they walk into a courtroom, you know, even after, you know, years or however long they've been litigating. And being a litigator, a trial attorney, anything that comes with it is really hard work. And it's the mistakes that make you better at the job every day. And the, the biggest lessons that I have learned in my career, the biggest successes that I've had in my career have all come from days where you know, I've walked out of the courtroom or a deposition or any other setting and said, I wish I had done this one thing differently or better or something. And I know that next time I will. And so if you don't say yes, when somebody gives you the opportunity, then you're never going to have that moment where you know this is the thing that I can do now and I will do it better next time. So I would say a big picture, biggest piece of advice, if somebody says, do you want to do this thing that sounds really scary, say yes and go do it. And mess up if 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 you got to mess up. I mean, try not to, please. But allow yourself to mess up and learn from that mistake and become better from it because that's how we all got here. And That's right. That's right, Sarah. That is actually some great advice. And thank you again for being here with us on our podcast. And to all of our listeners, thank you again for tuning in. And please tune in next month for another episode of Trial Ready with Barnes and Thornburg. Thornburg.